the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. I'm Crispin Schroeder. Today on the podcast, I'm doing a message that I'm calling my own personal canon. I think every Christian has a collection of scriptures that mean a whole lot because they have revealed God to us as individuals in, in a particular way, maybe even in very difficult times of life. And I find that little canon of scripture that I have comes back to me during difficult or chaotic times. And this last week was a kind of a chaotic week with a lot of crazy stuff going on. So I just decided to kind of share some personal thoughts from my own personal canon. So let's head to the talk, North Shore Vineyard, downtown coming. Thanks for listening. I was gonna. I want to do a little recap of last week's message, catch everybody up to speed. Um, it was after doing about a three month break from the lectionary. The lectionary is kind of the the scriptural guide that we use here on the weekends. It's a collection of passages that churches around the world use for their Sunday services, and we've been going through the lectionary for about two and a half years now. But we took a break from that for about three months to do a series on the spiritual journey. And last weekend was our first time to get back into the lectionary. And I thought it was quite fitting that the, the passage that we looked into was Ephesians chapter 3. And in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is talking about kind of the purpose of why the church even exists. And why was that fitting for us as a church? Because last weekend was our eight year anniversary. Woohoo! Eight years. And we didn't even have cake or anything. But I'm, 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 if we make it to 10 years here, I'm going to give everybody cake. I might even cook some barbecue for y'all. But at the, uh, in, in the passage that, that we looked at last week, Paul says that the church has a unique vocation and capacity for revealing God's manifold wisdom to the principalities and powers of this world, to the movers and shakers, to those who run things. The church has a capacity like no other institution or organism on planet Earth to reveal who God is. How does the church reveal who God is and reveal the wisdom of God? Well, that's part of it. The fruit? Us? Yeah, uh, bingo. My mom got the right answer. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we, we tend to think oftentimes that people will know we're Christians because we've got a little fish sticker on the back of our car, we wear a, a, a Christian t-shirt, or we're involved in, in, you know, lobbying Congress for certain moral causes and stuff, and, and none of that's necessarily wrong or bad or anything, but... The way that God ultimately intended that, that his wisdom would be made manifest in the world was actually through the church as a, a place of community and becoming and growing in relationship with one another. It's actually as we gather together as people who are pursuing Jesus Christ together by the Holy Spirit in relationship with one another, when we engage in that, we actually reveal who God is. 
to the world around us. Now, but this is problematic because in, in, in modern America, I think most people, when it comes to the church, they view the church as a consumable good or service. We think of church like, I, I, I hear this language all the time. I'll bump into people. You, there may be some people here this morning. Like, we're, we're church shopping. And that, that's a very telling phrase about how we view church because we kind of view church oftentimes like it's like buying a car or, or finding a gym. You know, I want to find a place that has some good things for me and will watch my kids and, you know, good personal trainers and stuff. And, and I understand when you're looking for a church, I mean, you do want to find a group of people who you can identify with and has, shares the values and stuff like that. That's not a problem. But if you only stay at that level of treating the church as just this place where you get something personally from the speaker and, and you get benefits for your family and all that stuff, if that's where you stay, you're missing the point of church because it's not just that. It's actually that we would enter into relationship uh, with one another and help each other and encourage one another and pray for one another and do life together as we move towards Jesus. But I get why most people don't like to, to entertain that because relationship is hard. Amen? If you didn't say amen, it's because you, you probably don't have some relationships of depth in your life. <laughs> relationship's hard. As I t- said last week, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, you know, he, he uh, wrote this fantastic book called Life Together, which was a, a book about community. And he said, you know, one thing that he noticed about community is the people who want community the most are often the ones who are going to ruin it. You know, because it's really this codependent thing, like I need somebody to, you know, fix me and do something for me and, the, you know, very clingy. But it really doesn't have to do with genuine give and take. It's, it's, it's not a healthy thing. True community, or as Dostoevsky wrote in The Brothers Karamazov, you know, true love is a, is a scary, terrible thing compared to love and dreams. You know, like love in our dreams and in the movies we watch, it's, it's, it's just lovey and, you know, romantic and easy. But, you know... If you ever get married, marriage is tough. Can I get an amen? Uh, oh, no, I'm, people are getting shoved in the, in the side. <laughs> I said, you know, last weekend I, I mentioned that probably the greatest challenge for Dina and I, and, and even our kids, since we started this church eight years ago, has been relationally. I mean, the things that have worn us out and made us want to quit on occasions have been the relational stuff that you have to go through in trying to, to live a, a life of depth in relationship and community with other people. Sometimes that, that stuff, I tell you, you know, give me a week of uh, just one day of, of, of emotional drama in the lives of people in the church, and that, that's worse than like a couple of weeks of just regular work. You know, I mean, it, it, it can wear you out. It's difficult. And I get why most people don't want to engage in it, because if you're in a, any relationship of depth, whether it's in marriage or, or friendship, um, it, it, it's tough because you've got to learn how to navigate these things of how you communicate your own personality, your own blind spots, how to speak the truth in love. And then when you don't speak the truth in love, how to say you're sorry and humble yourself and learn from the other person. It's hard, and it's fraught with all kinds of landmines. But it's the best thing in the world as well. <laughs> as I said last week, I, I, um, after being married to Dina for 20 years, it's, it's been very difficult on many occasions, especially in those first few years, you know? And uh, 
there's times I didn't think this thing was going to work out at all. Like, and, and that was just two weeks in. <laughs> but here I am 20 years into it, and I'm a much better man because I've submitted to that process. And I've been with another person who has chosen that we're, we're going to stick together. And we're going to do our best to keep learning from God and be teachable and, and keep doing it. And so, so even though that relationship has been hard and difficult, it's actually been a place for transformation. And that's what, when, when Paul is talking about that in Ephesians 3, the wisdom of God being revealed through us as a community, it's that kind of stuff. We experience transformation in relationship together as we're moving with the Spirit towards Jesus. So, I say that because that's a long way to get to that last point. That was one of the hardest things I've learned as as a pastor these last few years is, is navigating relationships. Also, the most rewarding thing about being a pastor as well. But the second hardest thing uh, for me as a pastor has to do with teaching the Bible every week. There was nothing that could prepare me for what that was going to be like when I was going to the vineyard in Kenner. In Kenner, I had like a pretty pretty cool thing going on there. You know, I, I led worship, but I would speak there like once every two months. So by the time I got up on that stage, I had 45 hours of, of study and preparation and 17 pages of notes. And yeah, I was talking with Judy the other day. She remembers the first time I talked at the Kinner Vineyard. And it sounded like a, a presidential speech, you know, 17 pages <laughs> long, <laughs> except not that presidential. And somehow, her and, Al, her and Al still came to our church when we started it. Uh, but, yeah, the hardest thing about teaching week after week is you have to do it week after week. When everything's going good and you got some good healthy rhythms in your life and there's no drama and, you know, things are going the way you want and you expect. And, uh, man, getting up on a Sunday morning is great. You feel energized. It's just it's a good thing to do. But when your rhythms get thrown off, when unforeseen circumstances happen, when, when, when you find yourself wrestling with the very scriptures that you were charged as a pastor with teaching, and you don't know what to think about some of these things, and you still got, up, got to get up on Sunday morning and say something compelling, it can feel like tyranny. <laughs> and, and I got to say, like during certain seasons of life, being a pastor, um, when that's kind of where I'm at, it, it's been very difficult to get up week after week. And sometimes I'm like, I don't want to go to church. They're like, well, you're the pastor. You kind of got to. (laughs) All that to say that this last week has been kind of one of those weeks uh, for me and for our family. Um, This last week had a lot of uh, out of the ordinary stuff going on. Our daughter went back to Loyola for her second semester of college. I broke a tooth the other night and got my first crown put in. Not fun. I think, I, I think they should require all dentists to give you noise-canceling headphones because that little... That thing's bad, especially when you combine it with the smell of smoking teeth or whatever that is. I don't know. It's just like... <laughs> And then, on top of all that, we got a contract on our condo that we've been trying to sell for nine years uh, in Kenner. So we, we got an offer, a contract, and, and p- please be praying for us that there's no technicalities. Uh, it's getting inspected on Tuesday. But, but, but the, the most major event that happened in our life this last week was my, um, my stepfather, John Erian, uh, J- John Erian uh, passed away on Monday. And, uh, you know, John... Uh, 
it, it's 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 a it's a strange thing when I just think about our life in doing this church because when we decided we wanted to plant a church, when we said yes to that call, it was only within about a week or two of that call that saying yes to do that and deciding this is we're going to leave Kenner and go plant a church. We didn't even know if we were going to come to the North Shore at that point. But it was only within about a week or two of that that John actually had a, an aortic dissection, which I won't get into the, to the medical stuff because I'm not qualified to do that. But an aortic dissection is bad, and most people die from it when it happens. He survived the surgery, but never fully recovered. And so for, for you know, the last eight and a half years, uh, he has spent a lot of time... <laughs> in hospitals and rehab hospitals and nursing homes and assisted living. My mom, you know, a couple of years into it, she's, she made the comment like, I think we're going to write a, a book reviewing all the hospitals in Louisiana <laughs> because they'd had an experience with at least about half of them, at least, you know, around Southeast Louisiana, probably about 80% of the ones in Southeast Louisiana. But it was, you know, John had always been a very devout Christian but I saw something in John the last eight and a half years that was, that was very, um, I saw the work of the Spirit in his life. And I saw um, how the Spirit began to soften his heart and how he began to be more open to what God was doing, more gracious and more grateful and, and, and that he began to trust God and even trust other people more. I mean, you know, granted, when you're bedridden and stuff, um, you might think, well, yeah, you, you kind of got to learn to trust other people and relinquish control. But that's not true. I've seen some bitter, old, resentful people locked up in a hospital, and they just fight in every, you know, person that comes in there. <laughs> but it was neat because I, I really saw, and I, I, I think part, partly just even due to my mom's, uh, loving care of this man all these years, I just saw the spirit at work, and particularly in the last few weeks, uh, John and and my mom kind of came to the point where they they had decided, um, you know, his quality of life was just getting so bad. He'd been in the hospital a lot, and they just he he was just. You know, I'm, I'm tired of doing this because it, it just wasn't going to be able to get out of bed or walk around or do anything anymore. And um, so they just decided to discontinue doing dialysis a couple of weeks ago. And uh, he was moved into a hospice home there in Hammond, Louisiana. And uh, I just noticed the last couple of weeks when we would go to visit him, even before that, just I really saw a, a serenity, a peace a grace upon him, even though some days his, his, his mind wasn't as clear as others. Thankfully, the last couple of times we saw him, he, he actually seemed pretty clear. But on Monday, Dina and I went over there to visit him. And um, towards the end of our visit, I was getting ready to leave. And, and John said, Could you, would you mind praying with me? Now, I prayed for John a whole lot over these last eight and a half years, uh, sometimes at the request of my mom and occasionally at the request of John. He hadn't asked me to pray for him uh, personally in a, in a very long time. And so I was like, okay, yeah, I'd love to pray for you. And so I went down to, uh, I stood beside his bed, and I just prayed a very simple prayer that, that the Holy Spirit would comfort him and surround him and that the presence of Christ would be made real to him in that moment. 
I didn't know at the time that those were actually the last words I would ever say to John. But if I could choose some last words to say to anybody, I'm grateful that those were the last ones. We got in our car, and we just probably only about 25 minutes down the road, almost back to our house, when my mom texted me that uh, just shortly after we left, he, he passed away. So we're thankful that his suffering is over. We're thankful that he, he gets to move on and, and meet Jesus, move into this next stage of existence and life with the Spirit. But for me as a pastor, you know, this has been one of those weeks where, you know, I, I, I cracked open the lectionary Monday morning to look at the passages that I, to choose from for this weekend service, but I had to say, like, I've not been able to really pay much attention to anything this week. It, it's been an emotional roller coaster of a week. And um, I found that this week I was returning to some of my own personal canon of Scripture. You know, we all have, in, in the Bible, you have what is called the canon of Scripture, the books that the church and the, and the Jewish people have, have landed on as being uh, inspired by God and authoritative. Um, but we all have our personal canon of Scriptures, don't we? You know, if you're a follower of Jesus, I, I bet that there's some scriptures that you can uh, recite from memory, scriptures that have spoken to you at certain times in your life or revealed God in a special way, scriptures that have helped, helped you get through difficult times. And, you know, for me, I've got, I've got a handful of scriptures that, that I just, that, that are in my heart and I can recite them from memory because they... They have a way of revealing God to me in a special way. And, and, and I found like, you know, in a week like this last week when it's hard to focus on anything else, a lot of times it's those ones that have, have sustained me through past trials and difficulties that come to the surface. So if you would be okay with me abandoning the lectionary this week, <laughs> this Sunday, I'm just going to give a little bit of a message real quick from, from my own little personal canon of Scripture. And um, because... You know, even though the specific passage we're looking at today isn't about grief or loss or anything, I got to tell you, this is a scripture that, that really was speaking to me a whole lot uh, this week. So, y'all want to bear with me for a few minutes? All right. Like anybody's going to say no and walk out. Y'all are too polite. <laughs> so, it, for anybody who spent probably more than a year at North Shore Vineyard, you've already probably heard me share a few times from this passage, but it's on the front of your bulletin. And I didn't even get an outline together for you guys. I've at least got one, so I won't go too off track today, off script. But um, Philippians 2, 1 through 11, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy be complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act to fulfill his good purpose. A lot of Bible scholars and theologians agree that, that uh, have noted that, that the, the center of this passage is actually uh, what could be perhaps the oldest Christian hymn. It's song lyrics. And actually, this, uh, this song about Jesus not having equality with God, uh, this, these song lyrics likely existed for a couple of decades before Paul even wrote Philippians. So this could be some of the earliest Christian theology that we find. And one thing that I love about this passage is that it, it takes these, uh, it distills these, these huge con- theological and spiritual concepts about God. It, it just puts them in, in a way that, that it just distills them down into just a few verses and, and helps us uh, see a bit of what Jesus coming into our world looked like and what it meant. So there's two questions that I tend to ask when I read the scriptures. And the first one is, what does a passage reveal about who God is? And then the second one is like, it. what does a, a passage reveal about how God behaves, how God acts, how God interacts with his creation? And so when I look at this passage, there's a few things that stand out to me. Number one, God loves us by stepping into our world. You know the people that love you, that truly love you. They're the people that are with you, right? They're, they're in your world. They're not intimidated. They're not loving you from a distance, but they're in your world. Jesus loves us, as, as Eugene Peterson put it in the message uh, translation of the Bible in John 1.14, the word became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. And we beheld his glory, the one-of-a-kind glory, generous inside and out, like father, like son. God doesn't love us from a distance, as Bette Midler once sang, but God loves us by getting up close and personal with us. Think about it. Jesus spent 30 years on earth before he ever did anything that he gets credit for in the scriptures. 30 years just being a regular guy. What does that mean? That means God loves us enough to take time to invest in relationship with humanity and facing everything that we can have to face. God trades in his kingly robes for human flesh and dusty roads. God shows solidarity with our humanity by becoming one of us and facing everything we face, even death itself. Do you realize there is no place, you know, we sang that song, there's no place I can go, I can hide or sell my soul that you won't find me there. The, the, the psalmist in Psalm 139 says, if I make my bed in heaven, there you, there you are. But even if I make my bed in hell, you're right there too. There's no place you can hide from the very presence of God. God shows solidarity with us, facing everything that we could face, even death itself because of his great love. This also shows how God 
defeats evil, how God deals with enemies. I remember back in, uh, what was it, 2003, we, we were new to the Kenner Vineyard, and we were doing an alpha course that night, and we got word that night that bombs were dropping in Iraq. And, they, and I remember going home, and, and probably most of us were watching TV that night, and remember shock and awe. When they began to drop these just incredible, like massive bombs all over Baghdad, and it, it, was, it was scary. And the whole point of shock and awe was that we're going to come in there and we're going to just blow up a bunch of stuff and scare them to death and maybe they'll surrender quickly. And that's kind of the way the governments and armies and, of this world tend to think. You know, if you want to, this is the way you deal with enemies. You, you shock and awe, intimidation, force, violence. But how does God deal with enemy, with enemies? How does God defeat evil? Well, we see this in this passage of Philippians, but it's also echoed in Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation 5, the Apostle John has this, this vision of heaven. He's caught up into the throne room, the very throne room of God. And God is sitting on a throne, and God is holding this scroll, and an angel calls out, who is worthy to open up this scroll and see what's inside? And this scroll represents God's plans for redeeming his creation. But it said that nobody was found in heaven or earth that was worthy to open the scroll. And so the Apostle John is observing this whole thing, and he begins to feel hopeless, and he begins to weep bitterly. But then an elder who was uh, gathered, one of the elders from around the throne of God, comes up to John and says, Stop weeping, for the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome. Lion of the tribe of Judah, that's militaristic, conquering language. That's kingly, messianic language. And so John turns around to see this conquering lion. But you know what he sees instead? A lamb that looks like it was slaughtered. And this lamb walks up and takes the scroll from from God. And this is what it says. God's people there in the throne room begin saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve God and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousands. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven And on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Hot dog. That's quite a worship service. It included, by the end of it, everything. 
everything that God has ever created, giving glory back to God. That sounds a lot what's going on in, in Philippians 2. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We see this scene happening in Revelations uh, 5. But you see what causes the, the, the very throne room of God to erupt in praise? Do you see what causes the, the heavens and the earth to erupt in praise? It is Jesus, the conquering lion, who has conquered not like a lion, but like a lamb. How does Jesus defeat evil? It's not through coercion. It's not through threat of violence. It's not through intimidation. It's not power over. It's not domination. It is humility. It is serving. It is power under. And this looks like foolishness to the world around us, doesn't it? I mean, I I know a lot of people, they look at Christians and you're like, you know, Christians are just weak and stupid and foolish. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, he says, even the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men and the weakness of God. What's the weakness of God? Jesus on a cross. What's more weak and helpless and hopeless than, than Jesus half naked, bloody and beaten, hanging on a cross. It looks foolish. It doesn't look like victory. And yet this is how Jesus overcomes evil, how he defeats sin, how he takes the keys of hell and death and ransoms us back from sin. This passage reveals to us how God loves by entering into our world, how God defeats evil, through self-sacrifice, not through revenge, but through love. It also shows how God has showed solidarity with our humanity by becoming one of us. Another great passage from my own personal canon of Scripture is from Hebrews chapter 4. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us in our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It's hard to have empathy when you haven't gone through something, right? Anybody with me? Like I remember before I got married, I, I had an idea of how married people ought to relate. And I, I figured it's pretty easy. This is all you got to do. And I was kind of judgmental to, to some couples that didn't seem to be getting things together very right. Then I got married, and I realized there's a little bit more to this marriage thing than, you know, sharing the bills and having sex. It's, it's work. It's, it's tough. It's, 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 it's difficult. I used to have, before I had kids, I, I was kind of judgy to people who had kids and how they would discipline their kids and how they would, you know, handle their kids. Then we got some kids. And, and I'm not that... Not nearly as judgmental. I'm still capable, but I'm not nearly as judgmental (laughs) as I used to be. We learn empathy by going through hard times. We learn empathy through our experiences. And God is the same. Isn't that weird? God learns empathy by becoming one of us. 
And this is why Jesus needed to spend so much time on earth just being a regular guy. Because what this passage says is, is we can have confidence to approach the throne of grace to find help. Because there's nothing you or I can experience that Jesus hasn't already experienced as a human being, not just as God. I mean, if God was out there and says, like, I know what you're going through, be like, you don't know what I'm going through. You're God. How could you get what I'm going through? Everything's perfect up there. Try stepping in my shoes. Well, God did that. God stepped into our shoes, and he faced every... God knows what betrayal is like. He knows what the joys of being a human is like. He knows what the frailty of our physical condition is like. He knows it from the inside out. And so we can have confidence. We see that in this passage as well. In this passage that Paul writes, it is very inspirational, but it's not meant to be inspirational. It's meant to be transformational. We can look at this passage and we can go, oh, that Jesus, he's amazing. Yes, he is. But that's not the point. (laughs) Because Paul starts out this whole passage by saying, in your relationship with one another, don't walk around with a bunch of selfish ambitions saying, me first, me only, and just treating people bad. Treat people like you want to be treated. Deal with your pride. Deal with your selfish ambition. Take care of the people around you. Consider others more highly than you consider. And why does Paul say that? And Paul says, we do this because Jesus has already done it. Jesus is our pattern. He's the one we're aiming our life towards. But it's interesting that Paul closes out this, this beautiful, grand, glorious passage, this hymn of the early church. He closes it out by saying this. Continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act according to fulfill his good purpose. Man, I was tracking with you up into that fear and trembling part. I'd I'd like a little less fear and trembling in my spirituality, please. I kind of like the God loves me and God's gracious and God wants to give me peace and hope. I like that version of Jesus. I don't know about this fear and trembling stuff. What does that mean? It means that what Paul is talking about here is serious. It's life or death serious. You can go about the world as if God has not entered it, as if God hasn't lived as one of us and gone to the cross and resurrected. You can act as if the world is is as it is, and you can get caught up in chasing after fame and money and prominence and, and just living out of your ego and what everybody else thinks. And there's a lot of good people who do that. But ultimately, if you don't have some overarching thing that you are aiming for with your whole life and, 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 and putting your focus into, you're going to find that even your success is empty. And Jesus is that picture that we aim towards. He's that person that we're striving together towards as a community. And this is life or death serious. It's silly to me that we, you know, we'll spend so much time, you know, working on things like like our family budgets or our careers and stuff. And when it comes to our life with God, we just kind of, it's something that we, we might acknowledge once a week. But yet this is, this is serious and it has ramifications on not only our own happiness, but our fulfillment and, and our ability to connect with others and connect with our own heart and move with the spirit. And my encouragement today is that in light of this Jesus who's gone before us, in light of this Christ who has ascended from heaven, 
Become one of us and face everything that we face. Let us not turn our noses up. Let's not treat it like it's something common or just something that we can just, you know, oh, be inspired by. Let us live in the light of that truth today. Let us take it serious because it is deathly serious. Lifely serious, too, if we can say that. So in closing today, I just want to... We're going to get ready to, to, to take communion here in a moment. And I just want to say this little blessing. May you and I this day find the Spirit moving alongside us in our weaknesses, in our brokenness, in our grief, in our longing, and in our unanswered questions and failed expectations. May we have the grace to entrust our lives to the slow, steady work of being formed by the love of God. That we, as followers of Jesus, would not seek to gain power, but to serve. That we would not be people who, that we would be people who live forgiveness rather than perpetuating cycles of revenge. That we would have confidence of the Spirit's working in the hidden, unspectacular, and everyday aspects of life. Amen. Brandon's going to lead us in communion this morning. Amen. Um, so, <laughs> you know, after a sermon like that, what else can I say? Um, I heard a story uh, a couple days ago about. Uh, James Brown, Crispin, who uh, he was on a he had a show he was doing a show, but uh, he was also on the ticket with uh, the Rolling Stones, and they had decided that the Rolling Stones was going to headline. James Brown did that personally, so he came on stage for the Rolling Stones, and he left it all on the stage. He was pouring sweat, he ripped his pants, he's dancing so hard, and he passed Mick in the hallway. And he said, follow that, Mick. So I kind of feel like that's what I have to do after that sermon. It's just like he just handed me the microphone and said, hey, follow that. So because, um, because like, wow, I mean, like everything he said was just right on, Crispin. And um, I don't know what to say other than, so I'm not going to try to wax eloquent. I'm not going to come up with something, but. In lines with his sermon, I found a quote from N.T. Wright. You know, N.T. Wright said that when God wants to change the world, he doesn't send in the tanks, he sends in the meek. And much like God, that's how God changed the world, N.T. Wright also says that when Jesus wanted to fully explain what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give a theory, he didn't even give them a set of scriptural texts. He gave them a meal. It was undoubtedly a Passover meal, but it was undoubtedly a Passover meal with a radical difference. Instead of Passover pointing backward to the great sacrifice by which God has rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, this meal pointed forward to the great sacrifice by which God was to rescue his people from their ultimate slavery, from death itself and all that contributed to it. So... What Jesus really wants to show us who he is, when he really wants to make himself real to us, he gives us the bread and the wine, his body and his blood.
And so as you come forward to take this meal today, remember how real that Jesus wants to make himself known to you. As real as he wanted to make himself known to Crispin's stepdad at the moment of his death. As real as he wanted to make the Philippians understand who he was in the hymn that Paul wrote. And as real as Jesus wanted to make himself known to his disciples on the night of his crucifixion, he wants to make himself known that real to you today as you take his body and his blood. So y'all can stand with me. I'm going to pray. If you're serving, you can come on forward. Lord, we ask you today just to make yourself real to us. We know you are so backwards from the way the world is, especially in our present cultural climate, Lord. When everything is braggadocious and big and brash and violent, you come in born in a manger, a carpenter's son, with dirt on your feet, meek and mild. Instead of giving us weapons, instead of giving us tanks, you give us a meal. You give us your own body and your own blood. So, Lord, we receive that meal, and we say thank you for it, Lord. And we thank you through this, we ask that through this bread and through this wine, you make yourself more real to us than we could ever possibly imagine. Amen and amen. Come forward. We got the Lord's Prayer back there. All right, here we go. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. Amen. God bless y'all. Who that? Help the saints too.